welcome to episode 202 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director, and a producer. And today, on the show, we have the fantastic Christopher Vogler. Now, Christopher is the writer of the amazing book, The Writer's Journey. And he sits down with myself and my co-host today, Matthew Butler-Hart, to talk all about the hero's journey and Christopher's 12 steps that he created to making story. We go in depth about mythology, about where stories come from and emotional connections. We talk in depth about the hero's journey, how it's sewn into the web of our being. We talk about his start at Disney and how he formed the idea for The Lion King, um, how he started writing coverage and how he wrote memos of the hero's journey. We also talk about the power of writing and his collaborations with Darren Aronofsky and Will Smith. And we go into detail, detail, boys and girls, screenwriters and filmmakers, about the 12 steps. He also gives you some amazing tips and advice along the way. Screenwriters, filmmakers, you're going to love this. Christopher Vogler's amazing book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers is available now. Get your eyes on it. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate your time. So obviously this episode is with Christopher Volgra, who has helped so many screenwriters in Hollywood. But do you want to write for Hollywood? Of course you do. That's why you're listening to this. Because this episode is sponsored by Screencraft Screenwriting Fellowship, which is now accepting applications from emerging screenwriters worldwide. And you can apply with a feature script or a TV pilot script. The three winning writers chosen by the Screencraft Fellowship will receive a week of mentorship and personal introductions to managers, agents, studio execs and producers. So, you know, past Screencraft winners have signed with top management companies, uh, including Netflix, Amazon Universal, CBS, Disney and Warner Brothers. Um, So screenwriters out there, you can apply before the February deadline at screencraft.org forward slash fellowship. It really is worth checking them out. You can learn more about how Screencraft can help you with your career goals at screencraft.org. The links to all these are in the show notes. So let's get to today's episode with myself and my co-host Matthew Butler-Hart, who has directed the films Two Down and The Isle, and very recently, Infinitum, Subject Unknown. He'll be on very soon with Tori Butler-Hart to tell you all about how they made that movie. Just the two of them <laughs> in lockdown in their house. I cannot wait. It also stars Ian McKellen. I can't wait for the stories behind this. But anyway, he's co-hosting with me today. Sit back, relax, and listen to the amazing Christopher Vogler talk all about the writer's journey. Enjoy. Hello, Chris. How are you, buddy? I'm well. Is this Giles? Yes, this is Giles. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the Filmmakers Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well this morning. Thanks. Yeah. Great. Joining us as well is Matthew Butler-Hart. He's also a filmmaker, director, and screenwriter. Hello, everyone. Great. Uh, Which is wonderful. My people. Yes, your people. Yes. And this podcast is that. It is about 
It is for filmmakers how to make films. So we go in depth, especially about screenwriting. So hence why we wanted to talk to you and your fantastic book and the 25th anniversary, The Writer's Journey. It is spectacular. It is the thing that people talk about when they're writing and people don't realize often that they're talking about you and your wonderful 12 steps. So obviously we wanted to let people know and they should buy this book because not only does it go brilliantly in depth about how you should uh, work your screenplays, how you should develop them and how you should make sure they go through the right steps. But also it gives a brilliant step by step of the whole mythology, the whole works behind it. So what is it? Why did you want to do a 25th? I suppose let's start there. Let, why did you want to do move forward, you know, to to put the word out again about your your amazing book? Well, I noticed that uh, among colleagues of mine who've been in business for a while, there are these anniversaries. And uh, the, the makers of the films, even if they're, you know, long, the companies that made them are long gone, they still celebrate the, uh, the 20th, 10th, 20th, 25th anniversaries. And um, it's actually a, a wonderful way to um, sort of interact with the fan base for those things. And um, many times people realize there was uh, a growing thing about that particular film. Uh, I know a fellow, for example, who worked on uh, Spielberg's Hook. Uh, he was a screenwriter, James Hart. Oh, James Hart is coming on the podcast very soon as well. Yeah. He's brilliant. He's so energetic and wonderful. And um, he just loves everything he's done and celebrates it and keeps it alive. And he found there was this uh, very strong fan base for Hook and for specific characters and individual scenes. And so he's resurrected all that. And I thought that's great uh, as a way of uh, uh, continuing this sort of handshake with the audience so that mm -hmm. people feel, um, you know, we're, we're celebrating something we've been through together because a lot of people have uh, lived with my book and actually worked with it for a long time. So uh, it, it makes sense to uh, acknowledge that and I'm happy to do so. Are there new sections as well to the, to the 25th anniversary one? Do they... Yes, you know, it's um, expected in publishing when you issue a new version of something, you try to make it different enough that it justifies uh, maybe somebody buying the new edition uh, or introducing themselves to it in, in a new way. And so we added uh, some material, took some things out also to streamline the book a bit. But uh, the main contribution was um, a chapter which I am sort of sticking my neck out here, but I'm venturing into uh, almost a more spiritual dimension where I begin talking about um, the system from the East, uh, the idea of the chakras and the fact that, you know, uh, the idea is that within the body, there are different spiritual centers. And when I worked for the studios and was required to do verbal reporting and reacting to the scripts that I had read, you really, we had to uh, strongly advocate uh, for or against things. It was a very um, intense atmosphere. I noticed I was responding to scripts, I, especially the ones I liked, I was responding by pointing to different areas of my body and it got me here or wow, it opened up, I blew my mind at one point and then it choked me up with emotion someplace else. So I realized I was pointing at these chakras which I had studied in an earlier phase in, in my uh, career when I was exploring all different uh, systems and, and uh, different spiritual philosophies. 
So I said, well, maybe this is something of practical use and we could become a little more conscious with our storytelling and our scene making, especially uh, about, well, what area of the body am I trying to activate? Where am I trying to, to cause people to feel things, allow them to feel things in a specific zone of the body? And I think that really helps with intentionality. When you're writing a scene, when you're directing a scene, when you're an actor in a scene, um, it really helps if you know what you're going for. What are you trying to evoke in the audience? And to think about it specifically as, as uh, areas that are like targets uh, for your, uh, your emotional darts. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. That's, that's what I was hoping you were going to talk about that as well. Because when I, when I read that, I was like, oh, this just completely, just, it just makes sense. It's absolutely fantastic. I was just blown away by the idea that, because I'm, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I'm sort of a, a fan of things like the chakras and things. We won't go into that now, but, um, <laughs> but it just absolutely made sense. I was like, of course, it's all about emotion, of course, and, 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 and thoughts and ideas. And those are, you know, they, they are you know, stored or whatever, different parts of the body. So it's just absolutely genius. I thought that was, a, that was well, a brilliant. Well, thank you. And, you know, this is something I've been cooking for a while and sort of uh, snuck it into my lectures over the last few years. Um, under the sort of banner of uh, California Dreamin', you know, this was mm. uh, something that, that really grew out of uh, moving from the Midwest of the U.S. to California when I was in my early 20s. And uh, I sort of took to the California way of thinking um, and uh, uh, looked at things as we did back in the hippie days as everything is all about vibrations. Everything around us is vibrating and we had these great... Uh, songs like the Beach Boys uh, uh, about good vibrations. Mm. And uh, I realized there was really something to that and that it could actually be uh, something uh, useful. And it's not for everyone. I found that out. Uh, some people have a natural resistance to these, a little more spiritual ideas. And I was lecturing in Russia and two businessmen got up and walked out when I started talking about this stuff. Because they said, we came here for structure, and this is not structure. And I said, yes, it is. Yes, they were going out. Yeah, it is. It's just vibing structure. This is just vibrating structure. Yeah, it's totally fine. It's amazing. We, as screenwriters, myself and Matthew, I suppose for me, I wanted to write just because I wanted to get that expression of emotion out when I was younger. It was kind of like, I don't know if you were the same, Matt. I was just like, look, I have to get something down. I want to perform something. I want to make something. It was storytelling, wasn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's that sort of innate storytelling that a lot of us sort of have. Um, and that's another part of, the, of, of, of this, this brilliant thing of the book. Of the, um, this, is it the collective unconsciousness, Chris? Mm. Is it, is that, that, that is just absolutely fascinating. But exactly, Giles, it's, we have this in us then you just need to get it out <laughs> and we do and we want it we go okay well how how am i going to put this to make sense and i think for me it comes down to watching stories and hearing stories our whole lives from when we were babies even when we we're in the tummy someone would tell you a story it was always beginning middle and an end it was always a good and a baddie the hero's journey it always was but we never really knew what it was or the structure so when i started to write plays I was already had that in my mind. It was in our psyche. We as humans, when we watch something, want the beginning, middle and an end. And I wondered where it came from for you. How did you start this? Where was it? Like you said there, you're in your 20s and you're going through the, the sort of hippie stage and the vibration stage. What was the point where you went, I know I'm going to create this 
12 step platform was there a specific moment or did it develop over time well it certainly developed over time and i can trace it back to the things you're talking about certainly i was one of the lucky ones who was read tales by my mother and my grandmother mm. and even as a, a, a little kid five years old i was already doing this sort of analytical processing of them um, I treated them as sort of mental laboratories where I could try out ideas of what if there were giants? What if you could become invisible? What if you could fly through the air on a magic carpet? All of those things. And, um, you know, to me, they were uh, real or even hyper real. And so I was following that thread and also noticing that those kind of stories and then in the movies, adventure tales and supernatural things, all those caused me to vibrate. And I mean that quite literally, it was like my tail was shaking, wagging like a dog almost. <laughs> my, my whole uh, uh, system responded to those things. And so of course I wanted to figure out how that all works. But the real trigger for it was um, when I was in film school in my twenties, um, I had sort of a conjunction of things. Uh, one was I encountered the work of this man, Joseph Campbell, who was a big influence on me and who, whose ideas I really took and translated into the language of film because he was not speaking about movies. He was speaking about mythology and psychology, but I found it to be, um, you know, a door opening that said, here is a wonderful system from uh, anthropology, really, that uh, can be applied to turned over to work in uh, making commercial movies. And just about that time, as I was opening up these ideas, uh, the first Star Wars movie came out and endorsed everything that I had been reading and thinking. And I realized instantly, as soon as I saw the first screening, I said, um, Campbell and uh, Lucas have met somewhere. Uh, that, that, and apparently Lucas had read Campbell's work and eventually they did meet. But uh, he sort of jumped ahead of me by a decade or so by taking these theoretical ideas and applying them to commercial filmmaking. And, and it, it seemed to me brilliant application and also something that was not limited only to the um, fantastic. Uh, I, I thought this was something which had real practical applications for any kind of storytelling, for comedies, for dramas, you name it, uh, biographies. Uh, it, it, it really seemed to fit or to support uh, all those kinds of, of storytelling. So then I set out, when I got into the film business, I set out testing that. And I had uh, the fortune of being in the side of the business where I had to read a lot of material to evaluate it for the studios and write reports saying whether this was uh, worthy of the studio's time or not. And so I had a, a battery of thousands of examples to compare. And uh, out of that, uh, eventually I was able to write the book because I had such a generous sampling of, uh, of all, all the possibilities, you know, and I tried to make the book comprehensive that way, that, that I, tr I tried as hard as I could to think of every possible variation of storytelling and still fit it within my framework of mythology. Such a huge amount of work has gone into this, 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 this idea. It's extraordinary. It's, and you can feel it when you're reading it. And you, this is not just sort of an idea that's, that's appeared over the last couple of years. This is, you know, 
been ruminating and you know for, for, for a long time it's extraordinary you can sort of feel the, the weight behind it well and there was another aspect to it which is that i felt i was really not inventing something but tapping into a vein that already existed and i feel very strongly this is one of the more spiritual sides of it i guess but i feel very strongly that the hero's journey which is the kind of blanket or umbrella name over all of these ideas that the hero's journey is something that exists someplace uh, in the mind of God uh, as the platonic form. Uh, I think it really exists and was laid down maybe by our ancestors, or maybe it's just woven into the web of creation. But uh, it's something to me that's very real and has applications in storytelling, yes, but also in politics and the arts and literature, philosophy, and all these other different aspects. Um, so it's, it's a rich uh, body. And I, I just felt, along with Campbell, I felt I had spotted some huge dragon in the forest, and I couldn't see all of it at once. It was too big. But I could make out, oh, there's a giant foot coming down, and there's a huge piece of the neck, and there's a bit of the tail. And I tried to stitch together a picture of it as best I could, but it's so big that, uh, you know, nobody will ever get to the bottom of it. Yeah, that's good. Have you been doing stuff all day, Chris? Is, uh, or that's morning there for you. Have you been doing quite a lot of press recently for this launch? Yes, well, in, in this uh, time of uh, COVID and crisis and so forth, uh, it has been a busy time for me. I have found a wonderful platform. Uh, this is a, a happy medium for me. Mm. And um, I found early on, I actually might have had something useful to say for people um, by putting the current events into the frame of the hero's journey and showing how uh, everybody is going through a kind of a hero's journey now, which involves uh, confronting the possibility of death, uh, the grave implications of everything that we do, the social network that we're all involved in, uh, and also uh, the hero's journey gives you a kind of a generalized graph of any human activity where there's a lot of stress involved and where uh, there's danger of failure. Amazing. Before we get to what the hero's journey actually is, those people who don't know, and to talk more in depth about all that, it'd be lovely to know how you actually got through the door at Disney and you were involved in The Lion King and Aladdin before you even wrote the book as in, in, in had it published. Yes, I found a pathway um, in school, actually, um, which was through one class. Actually, there were two classes that were influential. One was a class in film noir, just a film studies class. Mm -hmm. And in that class, I had my eyes opened to uh, some of the hidden mechanisms within film noir, within these uh, films that deal with the underside of life and with the criminal underworld and so forth. That is a kind of a philosophical system. Um, and in that class, I was directed by a teacher to read The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is Campbell's book, his main book that deals with this hero's journey idea. And so that opened up a huge door for me into the thinking. And then the career path was in another class called Story Analysis for Film and TV. And this was about all the different ways that the studio communicates with itself, so to speak, how they write memos to each other, how they write reports about the scripts that are going to be developed, 
uh, how they make decisions, how they shape the picture. Once uh, the screenwriters have gone to work, there's a lot of shaping that goes on, which they call development. So that course opened me up to, all right, there's a career path I might take because I did well at that sort of uh, critical writing. And uh, my path to getting the first jobs at the studio was simply, I went to the local drugstore and I bought a copy of the latest Stephen King novel, which was mm. called Salem's Lot at that yes. time. It was a vampire right. movie. And it's been made into a TV movie and later into a feature film. Uh, and um, I, so I wrote what is called coverage on that, which means you evaluate it as a potential movie. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a synopsis and I wrote some recommendations and I said, yeah, this is a good tale and it's got some great features. So uh, why not make that into a film? And uh, that was my calling card. So I went around to the studios with that one sample in my hand and uh, off the strength of that was able to get some entry level jobs where they said, okay, here's five scripts and uh, you know, you get 50 bucks a script to write these reports. And I just kept uh, stair-stepping on that and uh, getting into a little higher position, a little more trust until eventually I got into the union and there is a union for this kind of work. Um, and uh, that, that set me up at uh, uh, 20th Century Fox for a couple of years. Uh, as they were doing the Star Wars sequels. <clears throat> and I wasn't really involved in those, but saw all that going on and then switched over to Disney at a certain point. And I, I actually labored in the trenches out of sight for a few years. And then I, I started becoming um, more of a utility player, somebody who was useful um, for specific tasks within Disney. They knew they could throw stuff at me and I could respond quickly. Like they would, uh, they would come to me with great urgency at 10 in the morning <laughs> and say, we have a meeting at one o'clock and we have to know what holidays are associated with trolls in Norway. I would have to rack my brain, my memory, my research. I had a good research library. Because there's no internet back then, of course. So you can't just go, oh, no worries, I'll dive in. This has to be research. I can say this with great confidence that I was Google before there was Google, yes, I, I was the studio search engine. All things myth, right? Yeah, it might take me a little longer than Google, but you know, by, by noon, I had their answer. That sort of thing led uh, to building a reputation, and eventually, they trusted me with uh, more stuff. And actually, the doorway into working on The Lion King was plagiarism. Uh, somebody took of course. A, a memo I had written. I, I took Campbell's ideas and squashed them down into about an eight page memo, which uh, I passed around the studio and it became sort of a viral thing again in anticipation of technical things that would come later. Mm -hmm. uh, this was like a computer virus that went all around the mind of Hollywood by the, the simple tools of faxes and Xerox machines and so forth. Uh, this little memo became part of the thinking of Hollywood. And eventually uh, someone at Disney, a, an executive in the hierarchy, plagiarized it, took my name off the cover, put his name on <sighs> and submitted it to the top levels of the company. And uh, because I had salted it around carefully, many people in the meetings knew uh, 
that guy didn't write it. This, this other fellow Vogler wrote that. So uh, the word came back to me quickly and I put my hand up gently and said, uh, hey, that's actually mine, not, th not that other guy's. And the head of the company at that time, the head of production, Jeffrey Katzenberg, um, called me immediately and said, I see what happened. Uh, I know what to do with you. You belong with animation. They're getting uh, wheeled up for more production now. And they're working on something about lions in Africa. Go over there and, and talk to them. And so I went to see them thinking I would have to sell them on my hero's journey idea. But I walked in and in the outer hallway, as you entered, they had a, a cork board put up as they use in animation. And they had the whole story of the Lion King outlined according to my hero's journey. They had already applied wow. it. So this memo had done footwork for me in advance. And it's something I, I point out to people that the, the power of writing is enormous. The, the power it can put in your hands, even to write something eight pages long, can actually topple over the thinking of, of a huge institution like Hollywood. And it really did work that way. And oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's influence is just huge. When you, when you start sort of thinking about all the films in the last sort of 30 years, it's, it's, it's in everything. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I, I can't say that it is pure cause and effect. I think the more fair way to say it is that uh, the two things evolve side by side, that my sort of formal uh, statement of it was convenient to communicate it to a lot of people. And then the movies sort of evolved in that direction, especially by um, diving into this fountain of material from comic books uh, that happened to match it very well. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say that I, I, I caused all of this, but they certainly rhyme. Let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've had an influence yeah. uh, and, and in a brilliant way. Can you remember the, the moment sort of where you felt that things were moving well for you after that stage? Like you say, what a great moment. But then you were working on Lion King and Aladdin and then you carried on working on some other amazing films. Did you ever want to, you know, fully write yourself screenplays at that point or were you, were, did you find your home was much more developing other writers and helping them with their journey of the the hero's journey well that's a, a great question and you know i think it's natural for anyone who is in the side of the business where you're evaluating other people's work you always have that uh latent wish uh you, you always have the thought that uh well i could do better than that you know and you see you see things being purchased and made that you feel you know, they, they made them for political reasons or they made them for mm. uh, reasons that they wanted to get that actor happy so they would do some other project. So, you know, you saw all of that and, and there was a natural impulse to uh, make your own. Um, and I, I did in, in some limited ways. Um, my biggest achievement, I guess, is I wrote the script for an animated feature that was made in Europe called Jester Till, which was about um, a, a real character who lived in the 1300s named Till Eulenspiegel, who is a famous character in Europe, uh, mostly in German speaking countries. And he was sort of the class clown of his day. He went from uh, town to town making fun of everybody. He was a lot like 
uh, uh, Sacha Baron Cohen. He, he created these identities or he would pretend to be something and do it in an exaggerated way that would make fun of all the institutions. So I, I, I did, uh, you know, touch the bell that uh, one time uh, as the screenwriter on that piece. And then I've contributed to lots of other things. My, my favorite uh, aspects has been working with a few filmmakers uh, a little more closely, where they opened up to me, were a little more trusting. And uh, my two uh, stars that way are Darren Aronofsky, who, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you know, is a very talented and unusual uh, eccentric director. Uh, but he uh, sort of absorbed my ideas in school and has always been uh, supportive of me and them and the ideas. And uh, he, I, I think, actually uses this stuff in his work, not on every picture maybe, but in, in some, and we've actually worked together. And then the other one is Will Smith, the actor who from time to time has called me in when he feels he doesn't understand something about a character or he wants more dimension to the character. Uh, sometimes he'll ask me to come in and we'll just talk uh, about the mythological sides and the psychological aspects of, uh, of the, the character in question. So I enjoy that sort of work very much. Yeah, well, that's what's great about this book. So I, I was thinking, you know, it's not just for screenwriters, but for, for actors as well. Um, this, is, this is absolutely priceless material to sort of to delve into. And there's, there's so much in there. I think it can, yeah, really, really help a lot of actors. Yes, I, I, I found that in feedback from actor friends. They would come to me and say, you know, I had to do an audition and I didn't know where the character was in the arc of the story until I read maybe the uh, eight-page uh, version, the short version. Uh, but they were able to pinpoint, oh, this character is at a particular turning point, and therefore his or her uh, emotions would be arranged a certain way. He's maybe ready to burst out or ready to stand up and uh, develop a spine. Uh, at that exact moment. So it, it helps give uh, actors orientation. And also I, any creative person, when I worked for Disney, part of the job was occasionally giving pep talks to the Imagineering people who do the theme parks and the rides. And I mentioned that uh, you need to know what your story is about and you need to boil it down to one word, a theme, that uh, uh, sort of organizes all the other uh, choices artistically. And they enthusiastically endorsed that. They said, we have to do this kind of work in designing the ride, because if we don't know what it's about, we don't know what color to paint the floor. We don't know what, what fabric to use on the seats in the car. Uh, we don't know what music or what smells to pump in. So, um, they, they uh, responded very well to this kind of uh, systematic, a little more systematic way of approaching things because they were using it. Absolutely. I think it's touched so many people without them necessarily knowing. And that's what I think is so lovely that we can talk about it this way. So I suppose it'd be really great to dive into what is the hero's journey and delve into the, the sort of the 12 points that you have put out there, which I think are fabulous and every script screenwriter and actor and filmmaker should look at these. So 
if it's all right with you, Chris, if you just give us a rundown of what the hero's journey is exactly, so people who don't know, know, and then we can dive into the, the 12 steps. Well, I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick overview of it. Uh, you could take, you know, sometimes I take three days to... Uh, <laughs> I, I know, I'm fair this. play to you for yeah. doing it this way. But uh, the hero's journey is a pattern, and it's a pattern which is very, I believe, deeply engraved into the human nervous system, and we respond to it almost like we respond to color and light and sound in music and in, uh, in film. Um, it's uh, a, another uh, aesthetic trigger for us. And um, the pattern basically is a metaphor. Uh, this is how Campbell looked at mythology. He said, every myth is a metaphor for something and people take stories in as metaphors for their own lives that every story is really in some way about me. And if it's not about me, I don't care. And I just check out. So the story has to touch, you know, or slice through some part of your life for you to feel engaged. And the hero's journey is, is one way that, that uh, creates a metaphor, the metaphor of travel, of going on a journey, which almost everybody can relate to because we've all been through, uh, journeys or travel or changes of condition that are challenging and where the, we, you know, almost fell into a hole or we uh, nearly had a, uh, an accident or, or uh, some exciting thing uh, sort of dramatizes it for us. But, um, you know, I took Campbell's ideas, which are, uh, it's very complex. His system is uh, really uh, sort of for experts and it takes a while to decode him. So I did that work and I tried to um, restate it in a way that was clear and simple and practical, useful for uh, writers. And I called that first uh, iteration, the eight page uh, memo that I wrote, I called that the practical guide to the hero with a thousand faces. So I was uh, referring back to Campbell's work but I reduced it to 12 uh, steps where he might have 16 or sometimes he has 32 because he's looking at every little possibility. Uh, but the first step is simply uh, the uh, ordinary world that the hero exists in. And you need this as a baseline so we know who they are, a little bit about what they want or what's missing from their lives sometimes and how they relate to their background. Most of the time they're uncomfortable and they wanna get out of there or they sense something's wrong and they're waiting for the signal. The second stage, the call to adventure is that signal. And it says, and it's necessary in every story for there to be some kind of bell that's rung or a horn that's blown that says uh, there's a journey at hand and we've gotta make some change. And uh, this might be difficult, it might be dangerous. So the next stage is the reaction to that, stage three, the refusal of the call, where it's very common, typical for heroes to say, even very briefly, to say, I don't think so, not for me, not today, I've already done this. You know, there's this long list of excuses that they give or uh, really good reasons sometimes. Well, I, I did this before and it was a mess and I'm never going in there again. Absolutely. Yes, yes. But they still go, oh, go on then, I will go do it. <laughs> Some inciting thing makes them do it. Yes. 
So, and sometimes it's played as a little joke or a cliche that they say, no, I won't do it. And then the next scene you just cut and there they are doing the thing they wouldn't do. Uh, and the audience uh, plugs in all of the hemming and hawing and the, the arguing uh, that gets them there. But uh, sometimes it is a long uh, phase and might extend through the whole story where there's doubt, like in Hamlet, uh, he's debating whether to uh, take action all the way almost to the end. So uh, the next stage often helps the hero get over this temporary hiccup of fear. And that's uh, stage four, meeting with the mentor. And many stories in mythology uh, provide characters who um, are there to reassure the hero and basically give the hero something that's needed on the quest. So we have Obi-Wan, we have uh, Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, we have Merlin in the stories of King Arthur, which I think you know a little bit about. Uh, and, uh, you know, these figures are there to uh, get the story rolling again and to give the hero what he or she needs uh, to go to the next stage. So now the hero is armed and reassured and they've gone through their fears uh, and they're really ready to take the next step. And that is stage five, which is crossing the threshold where they actually go from the ordinary world that they know to some special world that's new and different. So this is where the travel takes place. And it's sort of a, a, a moment where the audience knows, okay, the prep is over, now the story really begins. And there's a nice lift that you get sometimes uh, from the music or uh, from the new location that uh, indicates uh, we're, we're in a new world and, and now the story really starts ticking along. The next stage is a little stage of orientation as you enter that new world that I call tests, allies, and enemies. This is stage six. And the idea here is that when you enter a new world, everything will be new and different. And you'll have to go around gingerly touching things and figuring out what's poisonous here and what's healthy for me and who's an ally and who's an enemy and what are the new rules and conditions of this new world. So we experiment with those things. And this was directly related to uh, my early travels. When I started lecturing in Europe about the book, I found every new country I went to was a shock because everything was different. The, the, the principle by which the light switches work. Totally, how the toilets flushed. <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't figure out, does it go, you push it in, do you pull it? How does this work? Door handles, locks, everything's different. Uh, this is a natural stage of, of experimentation and kind of getting your feet solid in this new world. So the next stage seven is uh, sometimes a long phase where you're going towards from the borderline where you crossed over, you're going across a space to get to the center where the big thing is that you came for. But there is this period of travel as you reach that. And on that travel, as you're walking along or driving along, you um, will go a little deeper with yourself and with the other members of your team if you've assembled a team. Uh, and you maybe made some first decisions or impressions about them and yourself uh, that, oh, I can't do that, or I, I'll really be good at that, I'm sure. And then you get into the new situation and you found out, no, it's all wrong. Uh, I, I can do more than I thought I could. Uh, sometimes my wonderful talents from the ordinary world are not very valuable in the special world. Uh, maybe I have to dig deeper and find 
some uh, other source of inspiration or, or power. So uh, this is a period of shuffling things around and going deeper. And this is where as a filmmaker, as an actor, uh, you spend a little more time getting to know the characters and build layers of relationships, uh, romance, intrigue, comedy, all those things have a little chance to breathe here before we get to the serious matter in the center. And that's the next stage, stage eight, which is the ordeal. And this is an old word from the Middle Ages that means uh, some kind of uh, ritual struggle where there will be a decision made on, you know, if two knights come together to fight for the honor of a lady, uh, they're saying whoever wins uh, is the, uh, uh, the one who's blessed by God. So it sort of involves the gods a little bit uh, in, in a, a struggle. But it's a life and death struggle, and it often results in the apparent death of the hero, uh, or you're trying to make the audience think that the hero has either died or completely failed mm -hmm. in the mission. Yes. And um, this is uh, something that is, is so strong, we don't even see it sometimes, but it's almost always there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you crack open scripts about halfway through, you often will find a death scene. Maybe the hero is hanging by fingernails and is about to fall into a volcano, uh, or it could simply be, uh, I'm not going to get the girl that I want, or the romance is crashing, uh, or the business deal is going to fall apart, or the, we're going to lose the game. And it, it looks like it's halftime, and we're down by 60 points, and nobody ever came back from that big of a, of a disparity, so uh, maybe we're sunk. And you want the audience to entertain that possibility mm. and go down and actually be depressed for a little while, but then you bring them back and the hero is reborn. The team comes back and starts, you know, they find their feet and they start to fight back. Uh, and so there's a lift that happens. So this is what you want. You want to depress the audience a little with the threat of death and then let them uh, rejoice when the hero comes back to, to full operation. So that also laps over into the next stage nine, which is the reward. And that's the payoff of this lift that you get for facing your fears. That's really what stage eight is about. And then you get the treasure. The treasure might be your birthright. It might be some uh, better understanding about yourself that um, helps you going forward uh, to, to, to see yourself more clearly. And the very interesting thing I noticed is uh, a, a concentration of a certain kind of scene. And you see this all through the pattern that certain kinds of scenes show up. And if you looked at a hundred Hollywood movies, you'd find 75 of them have the same kind of scene. And here the scene is a campfire, some kind of uh, actual flame burning. You know, it is so consistent that about halfway through after some big ordeal or test, they'll ruminate about it and they'll sit around an open flame, a campfire, a dinner candle lit, uh, they'll uh, smoke cigarettes in the trenches and pass mm -hmm. the light back and forth in the, in the night, uh, or they'll look in mirrors. I, I find a strong tendency for mirror scenes where the hero actually is gazing at herself or himself and realizing, you know, I, I thought I was sunk back there one scene ago, 
but now I see I have the power and now nothing can stop me. Yeah, I've, I've used that a couple of times, yeah. <laughs> In life. They <laughs> get a big head, you know, for a while and need to be brought back later, back down to earth. But it's a little bit of, a, of a, uh, an entitled uh, inflation of your ego because you did face your fears. So you are by definition then a hero. That's what it means is to face death and keep going anyway, uh, even if it, if it costs you something. Mm. So that's stage nine, the claiming of that reward. Stage 10 is um, where you're now turning back again. It's called the road back. And the idea is we, we went into this special world. We got something out of it with great cost. And now we're preciously holding that uh, and trying to guard it as we take it home again. So we have to turn and, and commit to finishing. And this is something that also is operative in the life of the filmmaker, of, of the writer, uh, of the artist, uh, that there are different kinds of energy that are needed to begin something, energy is needed to follow through on something, and a different kind of energy is needed to finish something. Uh, and so this is summoning up that energy to complete the cycle. And there are still tests ahead, but uh, this is where you sort of pull your socks up and say, okay, uh, we're going to go for it. And mm -hmm. there is an acceleration that happens here. Mm -hmm. So many times movies will add a chase scene at this moment. Again, a hundred Hollywood movies will have 80 chase scenes at mm -hmm. this stage. And you can have a chase scene anywhere, but they tend to concentrate right here just before the uh, at the end of the second act or the beginning of the Going third, act, third yes uh, there'll be a rush of uh, of renewed energy so then the last two uh, stage 11 is the resurrection and here you restage that stage eight ordeal but on a broader scale so everything is tested now this is where you have the showdowns where you have the courtroom battles where you have uh people standing up for their rights and uh, taking the ultimate risk. Maybe it's a big uh, showdown battle like in Henry V uh, where they fight at Agincourt, um, but uh, it, it's, it's a way of resolving all the conflicts. And you want this scene to be, or a series of scenes to be uh, uh, comprehensive and to sort of finish the thing and make it feel satisfying, but it involves a, a further test for the hero and again facing death and fears and sort of uh, burning away all illusions about yourself so that you are a fully realized person facing the difficulty with everything all lined up correctly and everything you learn from all the people you met on the way has been absorbed into you and incorporated in you so you're sort of speaking collectively at that point uh, and at your full power. Now, this can turn dark. If you fail, uh, then you have a tragedy. But in most of our stories, you know, Hollywood stories, you're, you're going to see uh, the hero temporarily look like he's going to crash. It, it, they, they make a big presentation that the hero might fail once again, and maybe even uh, convince the audience they've died, but then they're brought back to life again, and you get that lift all over again. And then the final piece stage 12 is return with the elixir, which is some kind of magic potion that heals all wounds. In the current situation, 
uh, the COVID crisis we're all dealing with, this would be the vaccines that we're looking for or some way of dealing with this worldwide problem uh, that will bring us back to something like uh, normal. It's not going to be the same normal, but uh, uh, something we can live with and resolve all of the conflicts and uh, try to get us going into a new cycle of life. And then you might go through others down the line, but uh, this one, we hope, will come to a, a happy conclusion. And the idea from Campbell is that the hero needs to uh, go back to the ordinary life, but changed and, and resurrected and transformed into some other kind of being with other powers, uh, who has taken all these experiences and is not holding them in selfishly, but sharing them with everybody else. This is an essential aspect of the concept of hero is that the hero is unselfish. And, um, you know, it's actually a, a flaw in a hero to even say, hey, I'm a hero. Uh, you're supposed to silently act as a hero by giving back something of what you gained, some of the treasure that you gained should not be kept selfishly. It should be paid out and uh, shared. And then you're sort of uh, in the, the happy zone of, of being a true hero in the, this mythological sense. If you uh, sort of perform these rituals correctly, it's almost guaranteed that the audience will get this lift and that they'll know this is something that's in accordance with, that, that rhymes with these ancient patterns. And people, I think, recognize that and they desire it. They, they, they want this particular uh, meal, this particular flavor, and it seems mm -hmm. to refresh them and, and uh, keep them going. And, and I've just talked to so many people from different walks of life who have found this useful, uh, not just in stories, but in their uh, preparations to launch a new business or their uh, travel business or their counseling or their pre preparation of teachers for their first year in the classroom. All these sorts of uh, off-book mm. things that, that have to do not just yeah. with uh, storytelling and writing, but with how people live their lives. So it has these uh, broader uses as well. And, and, and globally as well. Um, it is ext extraordinary, sort of, like, sort of culturally everywhere around the world that we all, we all, we all dig into these, these same stories as well. So this translates to everyone. Everyone understands all, all those little stages that you talked about, you know, in, no matter what, if it's film or, as you said, you know, teachers and things, we, we, all, we all resonate with that same sort of um, that story inside us. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it seems to be something pretty dependably, as I say, uh, engraved into the human nervous system. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's a fair criticism of this whole way of looking at things that it can be sort of reductionist and um, you can smear over with this some very important cultural distinctions because not every culture swallows it whole with exactly the condiments and the seasonings that we put on it as Westerners. Uh, they emphasize different things. They uh, maybe uh, are more interested in other cultures in collective heroes rather than individual heroes. And, and it allows for this. It allows for expression of different emphasis. Uh, but there is something that is as uh, fundamental as breathing and you know, bloodstream you know, about this. 
that is recognized every place. So it, it, it really has helped with the global film market because that's the easiest way, I think, to, uh, to reach a, a broad audience is with some you know, uh, re-expression of these patterns. Absolutely. Uh, Chris Vogler's 12 Steps there. That was amazing um, rendition. It was so nice to hear and so well said. Thank you. Now, obviously, you teach at USC as well uh, during this time. Now, let's say a screenwriter has got an idea. And I suppose maybe not to them, but in general, do you suggest that you just go off and write? Or do you suggest you pace everything out in terms of beginning beats middle end what, what is it that you prefer people to write with in terms of obviously it's up to them but what do you suggest well it is up to them and and so that's the first piece of advice is uh you know follow your own star uh whatever works for you is is great i wouldn't tamper if somebody was you know working well and getting good results then why mess with that but um i see it for most people as something that uh, advances and recedes. And um, there are times, for instance, in the early stages where it is useful to have that uh, maybe 12 or so points uh, at hand and see, can I roughly fit my idea. Like, I've got an idea. I saw a scene. I was on the bus and I saw two people walking along the, on the sidewalk and it made me think of this whole idea it just kind of bursts into people's heads sometimes. So then you take it and you test it and see, can I more or less fit it in and then push all that aside and write and, and let it come from the uh, non-editorial creative side that doesn't have any uh, commentary or judgment uh, for a period of time. And then you come back again and uh, evaluate. Uh, it, and, and I think that is really more than anything a matter of listening to your body. Because this is what I've learned reading 10,000, 20,000 scripts. Um, I learned to pay attention to the signals my body was sending me. And I knew it was bad or not engaging because my body would literally get numb in places. And as I'm reading, down the, I'm reading down the page, by the time I get to the bottom of the page, I'm asleep and I have to get up again. So I know that script is not engaging me for some reason. There's something yeah. missing. So that's when you might go back to uh, the, the system and, uh, and check it and just see, oh, well, yes, I didn't connect this up or uh, I, I didn't have something in the middle that uh, raises questions of, about will the hero survive or not. So it's, uh, it's useful for checking uh, at some points as, as you go. And I, I know some people use it very formally uh, and will even uh, go so far as to put it into the script. Okay, uh, stage one, we're at the ordinary world. This is the call to adventure. And I don't recommend that because I think that is, is uh, becoming uh, overly conscious and, and uh, you know, uh, the audience doesn't enjoy that. The audience enjoys the kind of messiness of it. Uh, and then they get to involve themselves going, oh, you know, I bet there was a, a scene, they didn't shoot it, but I bet there was a scene where he was afraid and he didn't want yeah. to go on the next stage. And I find myself doing this uh, in, in some of Hitchcock's movies he will uh, 
uh, suggest something and then walk away from it. And I have to do some work as a viewer to fill in. Why was Cary Grant so nervous about women in that picture? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'll invent something. But that's great. And you want that. You want the audience participating. So as a, a, a way of fighting against this being a formula or something too predictable, I recommend this. Know this form. But every time you use it, set out to break one of the pieces of it purposefully. You, you, you leave something out. It, you repeat something where the form only calls for it to show up once. Uh, for instance, uh, the form calls for uh, there to be a mentor who guides the hero and gives the hero something. Well, what if there isn't one of those? What does that do to the hero? It makes the hero feel very isolated and alone, and that's sympathetic. So sometimes it can buy you something uh, to uh, dismiss some aspect of it. Uh, and, and then the audience can fill that stuff in or, or wish that they could speak to the hero. I mean, it's as personal as that, that sometimes you're, you're allowing people to participate to the point where they want to shout at the screen and go, oh, you poor baby, here's all you need. You know, <laughs> it's right there. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and it is good that we can break that up and our minds do see stuff. You know, when we watch a movie, we piece it together because of all the movies we've seen, because of all the beginning, middle and ends and the 12 steps that we have seen without knowing it's it. It's often sort of more powerful as well. The things that we can create in our own minds are sometimes a lot better than anything we can put on the screen. I've always shied away from a lot of screenwriting books until now um, because because I was always worried about getting stuck in in a, in a, in a formula. Um, and what's, what's amazing about this is that you... you as you just said, you know, you can take little bits away and you can make it your own. And, and it's so refreshing to um, to, to hear and, and read that as well. It's, it's fantastic. I, re I honestly wish <laughs> um, I'd read this 10 years ago. I think I would have made some very different choices. I, I place a high value on all the, uh, the uh, mistakes or the uh, odd choices that you've made. Uh, those, those help make you too. And, and, and then come back to you when you do become a little more conscious, because that's really what we're talking about, is mm. moving up these things, which everybody knows on some level, because we've seen so many films and it's hardwired into our nervous system. Um, but for filmmakers in this age, we have all uh, lifted up these ideas into consciousness a little bit more, and it's even in the consciousness of the audience now, they're more self-aware of how bread is made, and, uh, you know, uh, they participate more than they used to uh, with fan fiction and all these other ways they have of joining in the game. Um, so they, they have become conscious of it. But as I say, I think it's something that rises and falls in, in your consciousness, and at times it's good to uh, let it drift away or suppress it and uh, just go from the guts, from the, the raw asphalt of your being, uh, bring something up and then you can uh, test it and order it uh, as you wish. It's, it's just such a wonderful thing. And like Matt said, it's something amazing you've created. And it like say you can take a bit of it or not take it away. And that's what's wonderful. And I highly recommend this book. I really do. I think it's great for screenwriters, filmmakers. You don't have to be a screenwriter or an actor as well. I, I really do. And well done. Is there anywhere people can find you on the socials and then also, you know, hear you talk more about this? Because I'm sure people would want more. 
Well, um, I'm on Facebook um, uh, under my name, and um, I have a WordPress blog, Chris Vogler Writer's Journey. Amazing. So um, uh, finally, then, if you can, if there is anything else you could give uh, tips to filmmakers now or looking back at your life as the younger you, is there anything tips wise you would give to someone who's starting out or making a second, third, fourth movie right now? Well, I think it's uh, a wonderful exercise at, at some stage in your development to uh, read a lot of screenplays and, you know, reading in general, reading mythology is a great exercise. Um, you could take almost any children's book about mythology and just flip it open and stick your finger on a, on a paragraph and you'll find yourself in a wonderful chain of connections, uh, how one myth connects with the other myths. Uh, and it kind of opens up and changes uh, your, your thinking about things. So that's uh, one tip. The other thing is just a, a general thing for the day-to-day -day composition of scenes. Um, I like to do a little kind of meditation, which is to imagine myself on an elevator. Um, I close my eyes, I take some deep breaths, and then I begin descending in this elevator and I go maybe 10 cycles of in, out, in, out, deep breathing until I imagine, okay, we've reached the lowest level, the elevator doors open and I'm in a screening room and this is all with eyes closed. I'm in a screening room and I go and I sit down and I say, roll them and the screen lights up and the scene appears and I have prepared myself to accept whatever it is. I sort of raised the question as I went down, what will happen next in this scene? And then I open up the curtains and uh, let it play. And sometimes uh, the most amazing stuff comes out of that because you're trusting your own uh, inner uh, screening room to uh, deliver up some things. And uh, I, I think you, you need to develop a relationship with that, with your uh, inner creative side um, and, and almost make it formal, where uh, every day we're going to uh, ask for that assistance from that other side of us. And uh, it, it's a good practice, I think. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Honestly, this has been incredible. Yeah, thank you. Such an honor. Thank you. Such an honor. Thank you very much, because your questions have been terrific and guided me to remember some things that I, I don't always think of. It's great. Uh, Matthew, where can people follow you on the socials? Oh, well, we can either follow Fizz and Ginger, that's our company, or um, M Butler Hart usually works on most of them, I think. Yeah, you're on most of them. And we are on Instagram now as well, at Filmmakers, at The Filmmakers Podcast. You can follow us at Twitter, at Filmmakers Pod, um, or me, at Giles Alderson. Chris Volger, thank you so much. This is available now. Go get it. It is brilliant. Do, do, do that. And remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty, as Chris Volga says, to send the elevator back down. And while you're there, think of some amazing stories. Uh, thank you so much for all your time. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. We will see you next Tuesday on the Filmmakers Podcast, as always. Christopher Volga, thank you and bye-bye. Thanks, Giles, Matthew. Thank you. Goodbye. And take care, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye.